0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 572nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is farming in northern Alberta, Canada. We're talking with Neil Boyd about life on a grain farm. Neal was born and raised on a fourth-generation farm, which was originally homesteaded by his grandfather in 1913. Through the years, he attended a college of agriculture and has been involved with plant and animal research organizations. Along with his wife, Ruby, plus family and friends, the land now produces cool-season grain crops in a way that preserves the soil. Besides farming, he is currently the vice president of Feathered Pipe Foundation, a yoga retreat center in Montana, and has done volunteer work in Africa with water filter systems and youth leadership training. Welcome to the show today, Neil. Are you ready to rock?
1: I'm ready to rock, Greg. I'm looking forward to chatting.
0: Me too. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Sure. I think, well, what it does is it's really started just when I was really, really young, you know, like uh, myself and uh, my two brothers and sisters. We worked on the farm and I can remember doing chores uh, before school and then we'd take the school bus. And and then after school, we'd uh, go and do our chores up feeding cattle and feeding pigs and shoveling grain. And we'd try to get all of that done before gun smoke. And then of oh, course, yes. gun smoke. <laughs> that was fun, wasn't it? Yes. And then, uh, so that's how it all started, you know. And then, and then uh, worked through uh, yeah, high school, and then on to college. I I did travel in Europe for about nine months, and and worked there also. And then the college, and then just started farming with dad after that you know we started to grow a little bit and i bought a little bit of land and i started off you know buying our my first quarter of land when i was 19 years old and and the farm that we live on right now i bought it when i was 20 when i was going to college and and it's been a it's been hard hard work you know like trying to make those payments and and hoping that the crop uh is okay you know there's always that worry about it and uh and then We raised a family, Ruby and I, we raised a family and and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, here I am, 66 years old and, and still farming and still enjoying it too, Greg.
0: Yeah. Wow. You bought your farm from your grandfather then,
1: right? You know what it was is a farm came up for sale that was in our neighborhood. And first of all, the farm family asked if we wanted to rent it. And we said, okay. And then they came back. To us, you know, within a month or two, and said, "Would you like to buy it?" And then, of course, you know, there was when you're younger, you have all kinds of of energy, and uh, my first react, my first reaction was, you know, of course, let's go for it, you know, because and and so that's how it all started. And so, basically, I had my own farm, and Dad had his own farm. He was actually farming Grandpa's land by that time, and so. So we kind of kept things separate, the grain, the fuel, everything like that. And that's how I first started out farming.
0: Wow, that was 46 years ago.
1: (laughs) It sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? It, it Boy, do things go fast. Yeah, they do. You'd think think I'd know a lot by now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe a lot of what not to do, right?
1: You know, that's what they say about experiences. They figure yes, that, that it, you figure out what not to do and then take it from there for sure. Right.
0: So if I were to drive up the driveway to your farm, what would it look like?
1: Well, you know, what you do is you would come along the country road that probably comes either direction from Fairview or from the west and you'll get to some trees. You'll get trees alongside of the road and there's, you know, so there's trees east and west and I've asked the the MD to leave those, you know, and that's basically for protection from winds and that keeps the birds in and that kind of stuff. And it's almost just a tiny bit of privacy. So, And then you turn into our yard and our yard actually has trees on both sides of that. Other than that, you know what? it's actually quite simple there's there's no flags, there's no uh, things you know it's just a, a a simple farm with some bins and a, and a house and that's it yeah
0: and what are you raising?
1: Well, right now, I'll tell you what we used to raise cattle, and that used to be probably our biggest enterprise was mother cows with their calves and then i would go to auction marts and then buy calves and bring them home and feed them and then grass them and then sell them usually as heavy feeders now not right now we aren't feeding any cattle we are raising grain and so we'll rotate our land with different cool season grain crops now those are for instance wheat and canola and barley oats uh did i say peas uh grass seed is another big one that is growing up here but those are the plants like we can't grow corn we can't grow soybeans we can't grow millet you know things like that it's just too far north so we have to be careful what we plant but those ones grow well up here
0: yeah i was gonna i just uh looked up on the internet fairview alberta and you are pretty far north aren't you
1: Well, you know, uh, there's a microclimate up here, uh, Greg. If you follow the Peace River, that's our main river system up here, you'll get fairly uh, good arable land on both sides of the river. A little bit farther out in some places, but you get farther out of that and you get into frosty areas that you can't actually grow grain. You can have maybe cattle and so on, but that's it. But we're we're right in line with mile zero on the Alaska Highway, which is Dawson Creek. So it, it's a little out of the way. It's only 2,000 people and we're probably, uh, well, we're an hour and a half away from a small city and we're about six hours away from a big city. Wow. One of the things that happens up north is that everything costs money to transport. So our grain has to be transported out and then anything for the farm has to be transported up. And so those are things that, you know, are all factored into our net profit and and for that reason probably the land up here is worth a little bit less or quite a bit less than it is, you know, and central Alberta, and so on.
0: Given as far north as you are, how long is your growing season?
1: In general, we can think about seeding on the 1st of May and probably harvesting the 10th of September. Now, those are just dates, you know. Sometimes, you know, like this year, we... Didn't get seeding until I forget, maybe the middle of May. And there's a an odd time we'll be able to start seeding the twentieth of April. But that is a good question, Greg, because you know that's the pressure that is on us up here is that we have to get the grain in in a quick manner so that it can get started and growing so that it can beat the frost. And we have frosts in August. Wow. And- yeah, and so, and so when you do get a frost, that will da- downgrade your uh, crops. And not only that, but but affect their germination also for seed. So, you know, like we're probably over equipment, uh, in other words, so that we can get it done faster. In other words, you know, a little bigger seed drill than normal, a little bigger combine than normal, so that you can do the job quickly. Because, you know, last year we didn't get our crop off soon enough for the snow. And so our, some of our crop was left under the snow all winter and we combined it in the spring. And so those are the kind of factors that seasons can, can give us up here.
0: Wow. And how much land do you have that you're growing grain on?
1: We have 2,700 acres that we normally farm. Just in this past year, we've pared down a little bit so that we can uh, make the job a little bit easier. But that's that's what we have been farming.
0: And you're growing, what are you growing right now?
1: Right now, we are only growing two crops, which uh, is wheat and canola. Those two crops are kind of our bulletproof crops. They're good for our soil. I mean, our soil is a little on the clay side, Uh and when it gets wet, it can be tough growing things like peas or, or barley, but wheat and canola do quite well on, on the soil that we farm.
0: Nice. So in my notes here from your chat with Janice, I noticed you mentioned no-till seeding. What is that, and what's the importance of it?
1: Okay, to start out with is that my dad was a bit of a pioneer as far as farming goes, and so it was actually dad that started uh, the no-till, especially on our farm, but almost in our whole area. In our... So what that is, is that you don't till you go straight in with a seed drill. Now, what happened is when we first start. by the way, when he first mentioned that, I said, gee, Dad, I said, no-till, no crop. I still remember telling him that. Uh-huh. Uh, at, any, at any rate, he he was uh, he he kept thinking it was the best thing to do, you know. And and so the equipment in those days couldn't go through the trash like the equipment can now. So technology has changed now so that we can actually go into the soil and farm without cultivating or disking or doing anything like that. The benefits of of that system is that you can keep the trash on top of the soil. Trash is a skin to the soil and all organisms need a skin. Mm -hmm. And that keeps the soil moist. It keeps the soil cool and it keeps the microbes and all of the life under the soil. It keeps them alive. And with our heavy soil that we have up here, if we till the soil at a certain stage, we'll get great big lumps coming up. I still remember riding a horse through a fall tilled land and you could barely ride a horse through it. The the lumps were as big as your head. And then, of course, what you have to do then is harrow it down so that you can seed into it. When you do that, then you've got that dry layer on top. Well, when you zero till, that, all of that stuff is, is remedied, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, it, it, the soil stays mellow, it stays moist, and not only that, you don't disturb weeds, as soon as you kill the soil, you disturb weeds, and then they'll grow, if you don't kill it, those weeds lie on top of the ground, and quite often either get eaten by mice or, or they rot. You know how they mold and rot and so on like that. And so that's a bit of an advantage there too. And then it, it's a lot less for fuel. It's a lot less for, uh, you know, uh, equipment that you need to buy. And it's less labor. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not too sure. But wow. and anyways, that those are some of the things that, that help.
0: When you say trash, do you mean the leftover plant parts from the previous season
1: exactly and so when you combine either whatever crop you combine that's the one thing that's really really important is the combine has a really good straw chopper on it and a chaff spreader and so that all of the material that you're combining in front of you gets the material like the straw and the chaff all get spread evenly on top of the soil and there it lies until you seed basically so really all you're doing is taking the seed off of the plant of the crop and mm-hmm. leaving all all the rest of it lying on the ground and not only that but the stubble so that's what's left of the plant that was standing stays standing and that stubble will save snow and it will protect from wind on the seedlings of next year, uh-huh. and and so those are some of the yeah. So trash is is the aftermath of the crop you just combine.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a that's a big component of growing healthy plants, and that's growing healthy soil. And that organic that's, matter on the top, the detritus, the trash on the top helps do that, right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. Great. Yes.
0: Excellent. I actually went back to college late in life around the time that this whole notion of sustainability came into play. And that was in the early aughts, like 2001 and 2002, I was in school. And there was a term Mm -hmm. that I studied while I was studying my environmental planning and sustainability classes at Arizona State Mm -hmm. University called triple bottom line. And I noticed that you talk about that. Can you kind of shed some light on what that is?
1: Yeah, thanks, Greg. Yeah, I'm glad that you ran into it where you were, too. It's a kind of an important thing. And, and I ran into it when I was on one, on actually, with the Pulse Commission. So that's uh, like peas and so on. And so, what the triple bottom line, as I understand it, is okay, there's planet. So, in other words, the environment. So, your farm has to maintain. Uh, the soil in healthy shape and the cattle and whatever you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So that's environment Mm -hmm. and then economics. So in other words, it's really important for that farm to keep a profit. And so the net income. So be aware of, you know, your expenses and your incomes and that kind of stuff so that you make a living because that's that's one of the important. Well, it is an important part of keeping your farm going. And the other is social or, or people. And so that's the community, that's the family, that's the friends. You know, it's social. And so what it is is social, environment, and economics. And I, I feel, at least, is that any farm that can touch on all of those three things, it, in the very center where they touch, it's sustainable.
0: Yeah. You've done a really good job of integrating the social piece with your work at the yoga center and in africa tell me about that
1: when i i was younger and full of muscle and brawn and so on i would carry calves around you know we were calving in the winter and that kind of stuff but after a while you know it it weighed on my body you know i started uh, getting sore back i i still remember crawling from the barn back to the house and i my wife Ruby actually suggested that I I try something to help me with flexibility and so on, and she suggested yoga. And I, I didn't know what that was, but I you know just through research and and so on, I I eventually went to the Feathered Pipe Ranch actually, and to be sort of immersed in some kind oh, of a wow. yoga so I could unders understand you know what this yoga thing was and. My first actually class was in Maui on on a bit of a break that we took from the farm and that and I really enjoyed it i I thought it was the right thing for me to do you know not not hard yoga, but you know I guess I don't know if there's a word for soft yoga, but that's sort of what i i, I like but and so that's how I got involved with the feathered pipe as far as as the yoga
0: as we age, we have to go to that soft or that easy yoga I, you know I'm almost sixty myself. And, you know, I'm a hard worker. I'm out in the yard working. I, you know, I do a lot of physical labor and I've noticed over the years that it's taking a toll on my body. And, you know, Heidi, my partner, my sweetheart, is a yoga teacher. And so since the whole COVID thing went down, she's actually been doing yoga classes from our guest room here and streaming them live. So I've actually started doing yoga classes virtually with her. And it has made one heck of a difference in, in my hip. I, you know, I have a lot of hip pain. And when I'm doing yoga, I don't have hip pain.
1: I have that myself. And so what I've done, uh, Greg, is I've gone to a physiotherapist, and she has given me exercises for things like hip is one, shoulder is another. And then I integrate it with my yoga practice. And I I try to do about three quarters of an hour each morning, and it's yoga. And so it's for the body, but what you end up finding out that it makes you feel better, you know, it makes your uh, attitude better, you know, you, uh, you smile, you're happier, you know. Uh-huh. And what I find is if that I don't do my practice in the morning, it's a little bit rougher getting through the day, and I can't explain that. But it that's what happens, and so they, the, you know, it says uh, mind, body, spirit, and I believe that, you know? Yeah. And so you can integrate it with anything, basically, that you're doing, but it certainly works good for farming, because we do, at times, do hard work that we're not necessarily used to. It's kind of seasonable sometimes. Mm,
0: right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. I, I found out about you from Jay Brown, who was a guest on the podcast uh a few months ago, and I was so inspired by your story of how you've integrated farming and yoga that I, you know, that we reached out to you and said, let's chat. So how have you integrated and incorporated yoga into your farming?
1: Ah, uh, you know, I think that I'm more mindful when it comes to farming. I uh, Maybe I pay more attention to the soil, maybe more attention to the plants. I Uh, Maybe more attention just to the whole environment, you know, uh, that's partly it. I may be more mindful with what I do. Maybe I only carry one jug instead of the whole box with two jugs, you know. (laughs) what? And and I don't feel bad about it anymore, by the way, either.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, and I think that's a piece of the yoga is... To be more mindful about how we're treating our body.
1: Yeah, because we can be pretty rough on them without even thinking about it. You yep. know, it. I think it's the right thing to do. Actually, mm-hmm. I. I wish I sometimes wish that I would have started earlier, but I'm glad that I did get introduced it when I did. Yeah. And there's never a wrong time, actually.
0: Amen to that. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Well thank you for asking about that Greg because we've we've all gone through failures and and you as a farmer you know this too but there's quite often some kind of crop failure or trouble with the cattle uh, you know, almost every year. You know, and and what I can say about that is is to deal with failures. You know, in in that respect, is to look at the cause instead of just in w- instead of the symptoms. You know, and so in other words, instead of just throwing more money at things, you know, maybe, you know, kind of think about why it's happening. You know, for instance, maybe with the cattle, you know, yeah. Maybe you put them in too small a pen and they got sick, you know. Well, Mm. instead of treating them, maybe make the pen bigger, you know, things like that. And so I I really believe in that cause and, you know, to be looking at the cause. So that's what I I think about failures, you know. And failures, of course, is just a way of life, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, Yeah. in farming and gardening and life, that's where we get to learn our most valuable lessons, I think.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it, it's tough. You know, I'll tell you that it's tough, but we get over it and, and uh, carry on. You know, that's the way it is.
0: Yeah. And what do you consider your biggest success?
1: Yeah, well, that one makes me smile, Greg, honest. It's maybe not so much business, but it could be called personal. I think the my family, it's the lovely lady that I married in 1981 and and uh you know i still think that without ruby i'd probably be in a burlap sack carrying a hammer you know and and she was a wonderful is a wonderful mother and together as a family you know we've we've looked after the farm and and we still do i i, I like that
0: nice nice and what about the success of your farm as well
1: well i think maybe I try to be open to new ideas. I think that maybe the zero-kill thing has really helped our farm. I think uh, listening to people who, you know, talk about the health of the land and then going from there, uh, I don't know if those are successes, but those, those are what has helped us stay in business, I think. And, and the health of our land has, is better than it was when I first started and, and, uh, I, I think maybe that might be a success.
0: Oh, I would say so.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And what drives you?
1: Well, I, I have to say that probably one of the biggest things is I still have to make a living. And so that drives me to get up in the morning and, and keep, keep at it, you know, and stay focused on markets and, and different aspects of uh, of the farm, you know, keep them current and keep them tidy and that kind of stuff. And another thing is that I really do like nature. I like growing crops. I, I uh, So I, that that makes me get up or helps me get up in the morning and carry through the day and then at the end of the day feel pretty good about what you've done.
0: Right. Tell me about the process from... The moment you combine the grains till it's no longer yours anymore. So the harvesting process and the sales process. Tell me about that process, would you?
1: In our area, it's tough to get your crop off dry. Now it has to be dry so that it keeps, you know, if it's too wet, then of course it'll spoil and mold and and you've lost it. And so that's a really important thing after you've combined it before you get it to market is to make sure that it keeps. So what we do is we put it into a storage unit that has air that we can blow air through it. And so that if it's not quite dry, it will keep. As a matter of fact, we can cool it down to almost freezing. And then, if it does need some drying, we can send it. The we call it an elevator, but what it is is the market, you know. And, and so, and then they will dry it. Now, what it you have to also market this grain also. And so, depending on what grade you have, you take your grain to the market, and they'll grade it for you. And then you, from there on, as you try to uh, sell it for as good a money as you can. And that's through things like contracts and so on. Most Mm -hmm. grain now is contracted. And so if you have a bushel of wheat, you go to your market person and you say, I've got this bushel of wheat. Which month is the best time to sell it? And then you make a contract for X amount of bushels and then you get it delivered to the market. And then, of course, they pay in. That's, yeah, that's, that's basically it.
0: From the field to the sale part. And what timeline? So we already know that your growing season is beginning of May to the beginning of September-ish. Once right. you combine that in september how long do you have it in your possession until it's sold
1: well that's another good question you know what i try to do is contract some of the grain in we'll just say november and that way i'll know that it is combined and it is ready to market and then if i do have some grain that maybe is a little bit iffy as far as storage for a long time i'm able to market that grain first with so that it doesn't spoil on the farm and the rest of it then depending on your cash flow you can wait until you know a certain month out and so that's normally what you end up doing for a lot of the winter is just marketing your product
0: oh interesting you know for years i've told people that being a farmer is only 50 Mm percent growing the other 50% is picking it, packing it, marketing it. And so it sounds to me like you spend half your year growing and half your year marketing it.
1: Yeah, it does slow down in the wintertime because everything is all froze up. I mean, we're covered with snow and it's, uh, the ground is totally frozen. And so there's not a lot of... Uh, if you do have a shop that you can work inside, you can probably do some, some projects. Now, we d- we don't do that, and so you know, it, it's a bit of an easier time in the winter. I can't say that it isn't. So we end up maybe plowing snow to keep the snow away from the bin so that when we do have to get grain hauled, we can get that done. We hire all of our grain hauled. We don't actually truck it ourselves, but it it's important that the machines start, you know, in this cold weather. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a bit of a, a, a process, you know, like when it's, 40 below and they call you and say that you can deliver grain well oh man how are you supposed to start your motors and so on but yeah sometimes they'll wait until it warms up to 25 below and then it's not so bad
0: (laughs) 25 below is not so bad oh my gosh not so bad (laughs) i'm uh, I'm, i've been in phoenix for 52 years and you know phoenix is low desert so it gets really hot here so for me 40 degrees is cold
1: well, my father and mother actually spent their winters in Yuma, which isn't too far away. That and uh, and one of the reasons is just the warmer climate. And then dad told me that if you have any problems with things like arthritis, that, that desert or that dry air is, is good. He says, I can button my shirt up better when I go down there. Oh, said. there you go. <laughs> yeah.
0: There you go. Well, thank you for that. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: I have a book. I I I do like to read and there's there's lots of books I probably could recommend, but this book here is a coffee table book. So it's a book that can be used every day, you know, you just turn one page and you get a new picture and it's a it's a some kind of a picture of nature, you know, maybe it's water, maybe it's trees. And then there is a page beside it that is words on it, you know, like it's a paragraph or two or three about, you know, maybe even a little bit philosophical. But the name of the book, it's called All the Marvelous Earth, and it's by J. Krishnamurti.
0: Nice. I think we have something like that. I don't know if it's the exact same thing sitting on our coffee table in the other room. (laughs)
1: You know, it's, it's nice. You know, I don't turn the page every day, Uh but I, you know, you know, and so it's, it's a kind of a a book that other people, if they want to, can flip through it. If I like it. Yeah.
0: And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: (laughs) Well, I, it's a, it's a funny thing, but what I've thought of is, is don't sit around too much. Uh, Get up and go for a walk. Um, If, in nature, if you can, but just walk in general and and if you get a chance to get your hands in some soil that that's a nice thing too and then and then, as you're walking, you know pay attention to the smells and the and the sound and 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 uh, uh because you know if we sit too much and this has actually happened to me, then you start to stiffen up just a little bit, and so that's that's an advice for myself, and maybe it might help other people too.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Neil.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to you, Greg. I, I truly enjoy talking farming, and it's nice to be able to talk to another farmer.
0: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So Neil doesn't have a website, and if you have any questions for him, you can send an email to him through podcast at org. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash